Hello and welcome back to Backchat. If the regular Nature podcast is a highly classified dossier, then Backchat is your Facebook profile page. In today's roundtable discussion, we're looking at celebrity scientists, sexual harassment in research, and the science behind a social media scandal. I'm Adam Levy, and joining me in the London studio are Lizzie Gibney. Hi, Adam. I'm Lizzie. I am a reporter here in London covering mainly physics. Davide Castelvecchi. Hello, I'm Davide, and I am the Black Hole correspondent. And joining us for her Backchat debut, we have Nisha Gaind. Hi, I'm Nisha. I'm a news editor for Nature in London. Coming up in the show, we'll reflect on the death of Stephen Hawking. What does it take to become a famous scientist? And what are the pros and pitfalls of having a cult of celebrity in science? We'll also be finding out how sexual harassment impacts researchers. This issue is under the microscope in every area, but what aspects are unique to science? And how does covering such a sensitive topic differ from our news coverage elsewhere? Finally, we'll discuss the science behind Cambridge Analytica. What were the research underpinnings behind this story? And how do we cover stories on nature that are already being talked about by every other news organisation on the planet? Now, first up, a science story that was heard around the world a few weeks back, the death of Stephen Hawking. Hawking was incredibly famous. I think it's fair to say that his work was less widely known than the man himself. So, Davide, just broadly, what, what was Stephen Hawking's research about? Stephen Hawking was, uh, well, first and foremost, a cosmologist, and he worked on the general theory of relativity, and he's most famous in academic circles. He's most famous probably for his work on black holes. And it, there's something to do with black holes named after him, right? What is Hawking radiation? So Hawking radiation is the idea that he came up with in the early 1970s when he realized that black holes aren't exactly black. They should be radiating uh, because of some kind of weird quantum effect that happens uh, just outside the event horizon of the black hole. And it leads the black hole to sh slowly shrivel and, and eventually disappear. We still don't have clear-cut evidence that Hawking radiation does exist. If we had found evidence like that while Stephen Hawking was still alive, would that have put him in the running for a Nobel Prize? I think there's no question about that. Um, although... Virtually no one doubts that it exists, that, that, that it's a true phenomenon. It is also extremely difficult to prove that, you know, the astrophysical black holes, the ones that are out there in the galaxy, emit this radiation because it, it, it's supposed to be, for a regular-sized black hole, infinitesimally uh, weak. Of course, I suppose uh, Stephen Hawking's academic papers probably weren't his most famous piece of writing, uh, which must be his 1988 book, A Brief History of Time, which maybe is one of the most famous science books ever written. And I have to confess, I have never read. Has anyone around this table read it? Yeah, I think uh, as a young girl, when I had aspirations to t study physics, which I did, that was probably one of the first 
physics books that you get pointed to by even people who don't know that much about physics. And so did it influence your decision to study physics? I think so. I think I remember the two big figures being Stephen Hawking and probably because we we're in Britain, Patrick Moore, because he was so visible on the television. I wouldn't say that Brief History of Time is the only reason that I would have decided to, but sure, it informs your um, knowledge as a kid and makes it ever more interesting. I was the same. I read uh, probably as a youngish teenager, I read Brief History of Time. And it was the first encounter with physics that was the really um, discovery element, mind-blowing, this is the universe you live in kind of treatment of physics compared to what you had been doing at school that time was, okay, if you drop a ball, this is how long it takes to fall. This was just completely different. It was um, really just opening your eyes to the very edge of physics as we know it. And that for me was transformational. That just made me think, wow, this is a subject I hadn't realised was as fascinating as it is and definitely had an impact on me in terms of studying it. Um, You know, people had written very accessible physics books before, but this was a real attempt at popularising what had, to many people, seemed like topics that you just couldn't popularise. And the other thing that's really cool about it is just that it has got one of the greatest titles of a book probably ever, introduces the concept of time, which you don't think about as a um, person or a human all the time until it gets introduced. Who has got their head around time? No one. It's not my favourite Hawking book. I found it very obscure, so, uh, I mean, I had other influences that led me to become a geek, but um, probably Stephen Hawking's book wasn't it. Well, I feel quite obscure for being the only one around this table who's not read it. So let's move swiftly on from Brief History of Time. Um, Stephen Hawking's fame itself came with a lot of attention, and the public noted comments of his on everything from artificial intelligence to Brexit. Now, what are the risks of having so much attention on an individual when they're commenting on things which aren't necessarily within their field of expertise. Well, this is something that, I mean, so so Stephen Hawking famously didn't win a Nobel Prize, but this is usually Nobel Prize-itis, is when you become very prominent and you have been labelled as being a very clever person, you then... Uh, your comments. I don't know if it's the people themselves think they can then talk on any topic or more likely it's that the media pick up on anything they say and, you know, treat it as a pronouncement of authority. This happens a lot in my home country, which is Italy, where there aren't a lot of Italian Nobel Prize winners, but the few ones uh, we we do have uh, are household names just because they're constantly on television. Uh, Maybe Hawking was unusual in this respect because he was controversial. He never feared saying something that might ruffle feathers. So what does it actually take to make a celebrity scientist? What are the ingredients that you think turns a scientist from someone who's respected in their field to someone that the average person on the street knows about? I think a lot of it comes down to visibility. That's usually television. Um, So those would be obvious examples as just people that you see on television. doesn't mean that you know what they do or what their research focuses on. People who, who say yes to everything, <laughs> so they end up on the Today programme. Probably it is also those who are w- willing to speak a little bit beyond their regular expertise. I mean, we often find with people that, you know, when I'm trying to interview people for a story, you get an awful lot 
of people who say, oh, this isn't my exact field of expertise. Can you, you know, you should talk to this person instead. And you get another kind of person who kind of actually realises that the level at which we need to talk to them, probably it doesn't have to be their exact, exact field. You know, they know enough to tell me something really interesting and give me some good context. And so um, I think it's those kinds of people who realise um, who, who end up talking more broadly and who are just generally articulate and eloquent and uh, or, or who just have a bit of, a, you know, great personality. That goes a long way as well. It feels a bit to me like uh, like physicists especially seem to be uh, craved by the media and, and male physicists in particular. When I've asked around a lot of the people, people name are people like Einstein and Feynman and Hawking. There are few people in the life sciences or, or fewer women, I think. Do you think that's just because physics has this mystique to it and men are, have historically been seen more as authority figures? I think physics is definitely considered just to be you know, difficult and a bit more other and a bit less accessible and therefore having some authority figure who can just tell you the right answer um, is, uh, is something that people crave. Yeah, and, and who has this kind of oracular aura around them you have, you kind of feel like they can pull out the answers from from thin air because uh, as long as you don't know how do they how they do their science it adds this mystery that makes them almost like supernatural um lots of the other people that you might see on television and so on if they're doctors they might be selling something i think with physicists they're just selling wonderment often which I think people are drawn to. Can any of you think of a female celebrity scientist who would be on a par in public fame with someone like Hawking? I had I, I foresaw this question and had a good think about it and still didn't manage to come up with anybody who was anywhere near that level of fame. I mean, in physics, um, you've got people like Lisa Randall, who is a theoretical physicist who's written a lot of books and who is very accessible, um, but her fame is nowhere near that of Stephen Hawking. Making it onto The Simpsons is something that is very rare for any kind of scientist. He was also the only living person to appear as himself on any Star Trek series. He was he made a cameo appearance in Next Generation. And I think what's really interesting, Lizzie talks about The Simpsons, when Hawking died, a lot of the coverage included exactly that fact that he had appeared in The Simpsons. So that's a really interesting measure of science celebrity. Now, when I was thinking about the question of women in science, there is one other person who who maybe would come close to that level, and that's Jane Goodall. She hasn't herself been on The Simpsons, but she was, I think, spoofed in one episode. So a slightly different um, kind of appearance. But Jane Goodall is maybe a person who's very, very well known, certainly through the 70s and 80s and, and 90s, as a as a primatologist. Let's move on to our second story for the month. And uh, we're looking at an issue that every profession is grappling with, and that issue is sexual harassment. This certainly isn't a new issue, but it's in the spotlight more at the moment than I suppose it historically has been. Nisha, there's just been a survey of sexual misconduct in UK academia. What is the broad picture that it's painting? That's right. There was a survey um, conducted by the National Union of Students in Britain um, looking at sexual misconduct in UK universities. And maybe we can just come back a bit later to, to talk about the phrase sexual misconduct. 41% of, of people surveyed, and there were about 2,000 of them, said they had experienced some kind of sexual harassment at university. That tallies with surveys that have 
been done in America and in Australia. Now, it's important to um, note here that we're talking about higher education as a whole. We're not necessarily just talking about STEM. Um, but this is one of the first survey, if not the first national survey in the United Kingdom of specifically staff to student misconduct. And the other perhaps shocking thing that the survey found is that almost or the vast majority of instances of sexual harassment, the perpetrator was identified as a member of academic staff rather than other types of university staff. Were there other ways in which the survey broke down uh, this misconduct in terms of uh, the victims by by gender or by orientation? Yes, um, women are more likely to experience misconduct. And again, tallying with other surveys, people uh, in the LGBTQ plus community are also more likely to experience um, sexual harassment. Uh, there's less data about how people of different ethnic and racial minorities um, experience sexual misconduct, but all of the researchers and the survey conductors um, say that that's a really crucial area where more data needs to be collected. You mentioned that this tallies with what we're seeing, say, in America. Does it tally with what we're seeing in other areas outside of academia with other professions? Yeah, so I think we it's probably not a surprise to say that um, in every field and sector and industry, sexual harassment is a problem. Um, but there are perhaps structures within science and the way that the scientific enterprise works, and especially in higher education, that maybe um, make it more likely. And that's a lot of what I heard from sources when I was reporting the story is people using terms like feudal and medieval of the system in science. So is that the um, the kind of relationship between the student and the supervisor then, the fact that in academia you may have quite narrow topics and there isn't necessarily somebody else that that student in that scenario could go to? Exactly. So what a lot of people say um, about the science system is that PhD students and postdocs, um, and it should be noted that it's more likely that graduate students or postgraduates, as they're known in the UK, are more likely to uh, experience sexual harassment than our undergraduates. Um, and that's, as Lizzie says, because in when you're doing a PhD or a postdoc, you in a lab, you might be very dependent on your PI in terms of career development. Well, we've got at least two people who have done PhDs here. So maybe you can speak to uh, what it's like to be in a lab. Yeah, certainly you can sometimes feel, I, I should point out that I, I never had this issue, but certainly you can feel quite isolated in in doing a PhD, which can surely have effects in this regard, but also have effects for mental health. And uh, the number of people you feel you can discuss that with can be somewhat limited. Which plays into the issue that um, if you're a more junior member of a lab, you might of course, feel afraid to speak out. Speaking out is an incredibly brave and difficult thing to do. You have to have immense trust in colleagues and um, and other people around you to be able to do that. What were the levels of, of reporting in the, in the survey responses? So the reporting levels are extremely low. I think it is about one in 10, one in nine, one in 10 people who um, identified experiencing sexual harassment reported. And that's 
because of many of the reasons that we just talked about, trust and so on, but also because people at the time might not realise that it is harassment. And maybe that's a good opportunity to talk about the term sexual misconduct, which is what the NUS report used. And I'm quoting here, they say that they use the term sexual misconduct to define a continuum of sexualized and predatory behaviours of staff towards students. The concept of misconduct moves beyond sexual harassment as unwanted behaviour to address the specific nature of the power imbalance between staff and students in higher education. Did they also uh, address the uh, question of sexual misconduct, even when there is not necessarily a power imbalance, because that is also quite prevalent, you know, students harassing other students, for example. The title of the survey is actually Power in the Academy, and it was very specific at looking at staff to student misconduct. Um, And that's because that area is less studied. But you're right, there is a lot of student-to-student harassment or misconduct, and that's an area that has had perhaps a little more study. So they were trying to look specifically at um, actions by staff in this instance. So clearly sexual harassment stories like this are very important for us to cover in nature. They affect many of our readers and listeners directly. Are there differences in how we report on a survey like this and are there extra steps we take to, to be careful to this sensitive subject? I think when talking about subjects like sexual harassment or sexual misconduct, it's you're always taking extreme care to make sure that you're representing the problem accurately and in a very sensitive way and also making sure that you encompass all communities. When, uh, in the end, I didn't end up covering the story, but there was a story brought to us about sexual harassment and I kind of went through the legal training as to how to deal with a story like that. And it's just completely different from writing about black holes, say. Um, And for very obvious reasons, we have to tread very carefully. Sometimes that you have to have quite a strong stomach as well. You're reading about some pretty grisly stuff that has happened. As this survey demonstrates, women are more likely to be impacted by this issue. Does that affect who tends to cover these stories here at Nature? From looking at the, who has written about all of our, written all our stories on sexual harassment, I think they have exclusively probably been women. Um, that is certainly not um, something that is top down in any way. Um, it is possibly to do with the people who have particular interest in this field. There's absolutely no reason why male reporters shouldn't do it and and obviously there's someone who just got a Pulitzer Prize uh, writing a, 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 a man a male reporter who wrote uh, about sexual harassment in the New Yorker magazine that's Ronan Farrow as a man I'm, I'm less likely to hear rumors uh, about uh, you know a prominent man scientist now that said I would be very happy to you know uh, I would feel very honored and 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 flattered if someone came to me uh, with such revelations and and wanted me to report on them. Um, I think as a reporter, um, some of that does ring true in the sense that uh, a woman might think that they would have more shared experience with you as another woman and therefore find it easier to tell their story that I could potentially imagine. Um, so you I might even identify with an experience a little bit, understand the response and and as a reporter or a journalist, feel a duty to try and raise awareness of the topic because it might be something that you're familiar with or that you've seen or that, frankly, we're all just outraged about. And I think it's quite telling that when these survey results were being discussed in our news meeting, there were, um, you know, some people said like, wow, 41%, that's that's huge. That's, you know, this is a massive result. And there were a lot of people in the meeting who went, 
It's about what I'd expect. I was to say it was lower than I expected. And I think it's important, of course, to note that while this is an issue that impacts women more commonly than it impacts men, certainly not exclusively, Absolutely. and certainly that's not the only demographic divider that uh, that affects the rate at which it happens. And so no reporter is going to represent all the people in such a broad survey as this. Right. Well, finally, let's turn to our third topic for the week, which is Facebook. Well, more specifically, to the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Lizzie, you've reported on this. What is all the commotion actually about? I feel like this is the light relief now. Let's just talk about uh, potentially swaying democracy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, Okay, so people are probably very familiar with this. Um, The story has actually been rattling on for a long time. Some of the revelations first came out in 2015, but this has recently been in the news because a whistleblower who had worked for the company um, was quite explicit about the way in which data moved from um, the work done by an academic to um, this company, Cambridge Analytica, who then went on to work for some very prominent political campaigns and who boasted a lot about, uh, or boasted certainly before all these revelations came out, about their ability to um, target particular members of the public for their political advertising and to profile them by their personality. And um, so the scandal is also a lot bigger because it involves Facebook. So the original data set was um, was from uh, involved people answering a survey which kind of was able to draw out elements of their personality and then in doing that survey and then clicking on a a button on an app they also gave um, this researcher access to all of their Facebook data pretty much and then that was sold on to Cambridge Analytica. What does this Facebook data actually provide though because looking at my Facebook profile nowhere on it does it say that I'm a hilarious, charming individual? So, Which it should. Which it absolutely should. I know what I am writing as my status as soon as I get back to my desk. It still comes across. Okay, that's a big relief. Well, that's my question. How does it come across from, say, looking at the things I've liked? So this is a big finding that, again, goes back a few years, that... Even if you have quite scant data on your Facebook profile, if you put that data together with reams of data from lots and lots of other individuals, you can draw things from it that you wouldn't be able to do if you just had your profile as a standalone. So originally, um, psychologists David Stilwell and Michael Kaczynski um, did a study where they looked at your Facebook likes, and not even that many, and um, managed to correlate them with aspects of personality which were gleaned from doing this separate survey. And the survey is really is the kind of gold standard for figuring out people's personalities. It's far from perfect, but it is what psychologists use. And it's kind of pretty standard across cultures and things like that. Um, and they were able to show, for instance, that people who uh, like Nicki Minaj, they are more likely to be extrovert. I feel like at least for that example, fairly intuitive, actually. That does make some sense. There are others, though, about, I think, um, is it... Hello op- Kitty. Uh, yeah, openness is uh, corresponds to Hello Kitty. Um, and there are... And, and, and I should also say it's not just personality. There were studies that are done that could um, tell if a, you know, not, not just male from female, people's sexual orientation. Um, and some of them really do not seem obvious at all. They're very, very subtle and they only come out from the fact that you have, um, you know, you have a relatively small effect, but that becomes obvious with a lot of data. So do we know that by targeting adverts based on different personality types, you're actually able to influence people's behaviour in some meaningful way? Right. So so this is it. There are kind of 
two scientific questions that we tried to answer in this explainer that we wrote. So the first is about kind of what we've been talking about, like how do you actually build a personality profile? Is that possible? And there are lots more um, interesting elements to that because you don't just need Facebook data or Facebook likes. In fact, you can do that with any element of digital footprint. As long as you have a survey to correlate it with, this could be your purchasing history, your browsing data, your phone calls. Then yes, the second big question is, if you know someone's personality, is that going to influence them? And the data there is, the, the, the research there is a little shakier. So there have been some studies that showed um, that people were significantly more likely to buy a product if they were shown a, an advert that was tailored to match their personality versus one that was a complete mismatch. Um, but this is still quite a new and developing science. Um, it's very hard to do in a real world scenario. It's been done in the lab a lot. Um, and when we uh, talk to huge number of of researchers for this story, there were a lot of differing opinions. Some people said, yes, you can tailor adverts, but the impact is likely to be quite small, or yes, it might impact your how likely you are to buy a product, but that is maybe very different to um, whether you'll be influenced to vote in a different way or not. And I think that was reflected in the headline that we ended up running with the story, which was the scant science behind Cambridge Analytica's marketing techniques. Cambridge Analytica had, you know, they are a company, they're a commercial company, they had spoken very widely about what they were able to do. And so I think a lot of journalists just took it um, as as given that they were able to do what they said they were able to do, which of course was kind of marketing really in the first place. One thing that gets lost in this debate sometimes though is that it's not only a crime to subvert democracy, even if you try and you're not very effective, effective it's still a crime to try to subvert democracy. And it's still worrying if a foreign power tries to do it, even if maybe they're not successful. I think, yeah, but what is subverting democracy? So something else that came out, um, and this is something that I've actually been looking at now for a couple of years, we never just actually got to write a story about it, um, is that advertising generally already segments the population to a great extent. Um, a lot of people might break you down as a, you know, a very, very specific slender slice of a demographic and, and, and aim adverts at you already doing that. And on top of it saying, oh, and we think you're introverted. How much of a difference does that make? I think the the real big scandal that's come out of this is that people just didn't know what was happening with their data and also they weren't helped to understand it you know there were, there's a lot of tick this box here um you know but no, who reads those 10 pages of consent i would say very few people this was a story of course that was being covered by by pretty much every single news outlet that you could imagine D- does that change how we end up reporting it do we search long and hard for the nature way of doing it Absolutely. So as nature, there are a couple of different value adds that we see we can contribute. So one is, you know, how does this affect the scientific world? Because that's where a lot of our readers come from. And then the other is, how can we take a scientific view of this topic? Can we provide an analysis, an explainer that really, um, you know, nails these scientific questions and, and buries down deep into them? So we uh, we kind of did both of those, I suppose. We had our explainer on the, the as it turned out to be, scant science of Cambridge Analytica and we also wrote a leader on um, how uh, how universities and institutions need to make sure they're applying proper scrutiny to that kind of research as they would in lots of other fields. 
I was actually traveling when the story broke. And since I've been back, I feel like I have a lot of ground to catch up on. I feel like every time I feel like I've got what this story is about, a whole host of other things have developed and I'm just constantly playing catch up. I think that was really apparent in the first few days of this story really breaking um, is that every day we would come into the office and some other um, things would come out in the story. I'm afraid that is it for this month's show, but thank you to my guests Nisha Gaind, Lizzie Gibney and Davide Castelvecchi. The Nature Podcast is sadly not on Facebook, but we are on Twitter at Nature Podcast, and you can hear more of our guests' internal monologues on Twitter. So where can they find you? I am at D Castelvecchi. I'm at Lizzie Gibney. I don't tweet. And I'm at Climate Adam. Unfortunately, you'll just have to imagine Nisha's internal monologue. Until next time, I'm Adam Levy. Thanks for listening.